put it this way. If I was charged with a serious offence in the 1960s or 1970s, I would get Roy Cohn. Not yeah. so much for his... I'm sure there were probably better lawyers out there, but the connections he had were so good that he'd get you the best chance. Legends of America's mobs are woven into the fabric of society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the tales of these criminal organizations. Their stories of power, wealth, respect, family, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mobs may be over, organized crime continues to thrive, and the stories remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Gangland History Podcast, hosted by mob historian Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind organized crime in America. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Gangland History Podcast, formerly the Members Only Podcast. And today's going to be a little bit different. It's not just me. Uh, we're actually going to go back to the world of to the world of interviews. Uh, and I've got a really great guest today uh, from all the way in the land down under. Uh, his name is Tony Toke. He's a lawyer, so he brings a lot of subject matter expertise to what we're talking about. And I'll just let him introduce myself. How's it going, Tony? How you going, Jacob? I'm good. And I think I said, I'll just let him introduce myself. <laughs> but what I definitely meant was I'll let him introduce himself. <laughs> himself. Uh, that's the fun thing with with live recording. Uh, but yeah, thanks for coming on, Tony. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, and I'm excited to get into the subject today, uh, Roy Cohn. And I just want to let our audience know we're going to be doing a series. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be where we're covering mob lawyers and we're we're looking at it from a biographical standpoint but because uh this is what tony does for a day job we're looking at it from the point of view uh that he has as a subject matter expert this is what he does all day every day and i think he's going to bring a pretty unique flavor to breaking down some of the most well-known mob lawyers uh you know in the uh, in the genre over the history, I would say, of the last probably 50, 60, 70, 70 years. Um, we've got also another episode planned where we're going to talk about Cincinnati's George Remus, who famously shows up in Boardwalk Empire. Uh, and we're going to we're probably going to record that in February just so people have an idea of what's coming down the pipe. Um, but, Tony, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself before we kind of get into the subject? Thanks, Jake. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I've been a lawyer since 2005. I have practiced in criminal law, but uh, not as much as I used to. I'm more into commercial business and property and other things now, but I still from time to time do some criminal law, but more minor crime. Uh, with respect to mob trolls and mob lawyers, I've been researching the subject extensively for the past 17 years. I've read virtually every book on the subject and uh, read trials, transcripts, and I've visited the United States on a few occasions. And I've been to all the places where mob-significant events have taken place. So, yeah, I'm, um, I've had this interest and passion about the matter for many years now. 
Yeah, I was going to ask how you kind of uh, got into the, the the mob genre, like what what appealed to it about you. For me, I know I'm I'm a student of history uh, and, of course, love mob movies. And when you blend those two things together, well, you get this uh, this podcast. Of course, I also have a, a passion for content creation. Uh, and as I under, as I understand it, Tony, I think uh, something you're looking to do at some point in the future, and I would definitely be in, interested in reading this, is is publishing your own your own book. Uh, and you know, I'd love you know if you have uh, if you've started any work, if it's still just aspirational. But yeah, I'd love for you to talk about you know how you you became passionate about the the genre, uh, as well as you know what you're thinking about maybe publishing on someday. Well, when you read about, well, I've always had, first of all, it started watching the movies uh, as a teenager. Yeah. And then as I got older, I started reading the books and you would inevitably come across trials and arrests and indictments and everything else. Yep. And all these colourful characters would come up, uh, people like Bruce Cutler, people like O'Hare, the guy who defended Capone, and uh, people like... Robert Simone from Philadelphia when you're reading about the Philadelphia underworld with uh, Nicodemo Scarfo. So eventually I became intrigued by these characters, especially after I became a lawyer. I went into law school in 2000. I finished high school in 99, went into law school, straight into law school in 2000. And I started to think, wow, um, I mean, uh, they pull off some stunning victories and their tactics and the way they cross-examined the witnesses, I was really fascinated with that and I uh, decided to go into go in depth with that and just read about how they did it. Then I'd, uh, after I'd read every book, I'd start ordering the transcripts off the internet and reading the transcripts there and I just couldn't get enough. Uh, and then I got into the commission trials and then the Pizza Connection trial and and then when, when I covered all that, I went back to the 1920s and dealt with those trolls, uh, Sam Leibowitz when he was representing Capone and a few other mobsters from that era. And uh, it's a fascinating subject. And it goes part and parcel with uh, mob history. I mean, a lot of the time, and I'll be covering this here, especially with Boyd Cohn, if these guys didn't get off, they would be a footnote in history. The fact that they beat the system yep. and got acquitted, that allowed them to pursue their criminal activities and become notorious a lot of the time. So... They played a big role in more in gangland history. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the fact that mobsters, by and large, for the majority of the 20th century, until you got into the era of Rico, were largely able to avoid prosecution. Uh, you know, not that they were never prosecuted or never went to prison, but they were largely able to avoid, you know, long sentences. And especially in the 20s and 30s, they had. All the, as Don Corleone says, all the judges, all the politicians in their in their pockets, uh, and the often the middlemen uh, to handle these transactions between the political establishment and the gangsters themselves were lawyers, just like uh, just like Roy Cohn, kind of playing uh, playing in the very gray area of legality for sure. So. Uh, so let's get into let's get into our subject. Uh, Roy Cohn, Roy Marcus Cohn. We're gonna um, do a little bit of a biography, but then we're definitely gonna talk about uh, some of his tactics and some of kind of the 
the things that he became known for and look at it from a, a bit of a legal perspective. Uh, for those of you that aren't aware of Roy Cohn, he was probably one of the most famous. Now, I don't I don't know exactly. I haven't really sat down and thought about who I consider to be the most famous mob lawyer. But if there were a Mount Rushmore of mob lawyers, Roy Cohn would definitely be on it. He represented you know, lots and lots of people from the underworld, uh, but lots of celebrities as as well. He was very high profile. So, uh, of course, some underworld names you would know, John Gotti, Carmine Galante, Tony Salerno. Uh, but he was also known to have represented people like President Trump, uh, George Steinbrenner, the owner of the Yankees, Aristotle Onassis, the man who married uh, Jackie O, of course, a after she, uh, you know, was married to President Kennedy. Right. So these are huge, huge names. And the one point of connection was Roy Marcus Cohn. <laughs> So, Tony, I'll kick it over to you. Uh, who was Roy Cohn? Where was he from? How did he get started? He was born in Manhattan in 1927. His father was a judge and his mother came from a family of quite prominent entrepreneurs and bankers. Now, with this background, he had a good head start in life and he learned the value of connections at an early age. Uh, for instance, when he was still in high school, uh, Cohn used his father's influence to fix a parking ticket for a school teacher, trying to impress him. Apparently, he called the precinct captain and uh, dropped his father's name and managed to get the ticket quashed. He'd also arranged jobs for people willing to pay him kickbacks. Now, shortly after he graduated from Columbia Law School, uh, before the age of 21, by the way, he began using working as a federal prosecutor in Manhattan. No doubt, he used his family connections to land the job. Now, as a federal prosecutor, he was instrumental in sending atomic spies Julius and Ethel Rosenberg to the electric chair in the early 1950s. Now, in doing so, he apparently cut a lot of corners by doing things like eliciting false testimony from key, key witnesses, having conversations with the trial judge outside the presence of the Rosenberg's lawyers to convince him to impose the death penalty. That was a serious ethical breach by Conan the judge. Now, after that, he served as chief aide to Senator Joseph McCarthy during his anti-communist uh, crusade in the 1950s. For two years, he helped McCarthy in his wide-ranging and often unfounded attacks on alleged communists in the US government and military. Now, those denunciations and fear-mongering, which our audience might be familiar with from their history lessons in the US, I would imagine they teach you this they do. in the when you're doing Cold War history in if the you're US. If you're paying attention. <laughs> they yes. <laughs> if you're paying attention, if you're not yes. sleeping. Yeah. Uh, these McCarthy hearings created this whole climate of fear and suspicion across the US and yep. even drove some people to commit suicide. Now, uh, the interesting thing is, Cohn was a closet homosexual, yet he helped purge suspected gay and lesbian employees from the government on the grounds that they were an unacceptable security risk for the United States, because apparently they were more susceptible to blackmail at the time by overseas spy services because they were homosexual. Uh, Cohn was publicly discredited during the nationally televised hearings 
when it was revealed that he employed pressure tactics against the US Army to obtain preferential treatment for a guy called G. David Shine. Now, a lot of people suspected this guy to be Cohn's boyfriend. And this was the 1950s when people weren't as open-minded as they are today. Uh, Shortly thereafter, he left Washington, D.C., and thereafter went into private practice in New York. Now, now you have a guy who committed prosecutorial misconduct to fry people in the electric chair, falsely accused people of having, having communist sympathies, created hysteria around the country and drove people to commit suicide, was disgraced on national television, and was a homosexual at a, at a time when it was a taboo. Not exactly a recipe for success for someone going into private practice, you'd think. Yeah, but he he found he found a way. <laughs> he found a way to continue to be successful. And that's actually what I find fascinating uh, about him. I think he's a he's a very fascinating character. And in digging into Cone, the thing I did not, you know, did not know at first was that he he didn't get his start as being a mob lawyer. He got his start in the 50s uh, with the Julius and Ethel Rosenberg trial, which I'm not I'm not going to claim to uh, to be an expert. But uh, but as you said, Tony, they were they were arrested on suspicion of being Soviet spies and uh, whether they were or weren't. There was definite misconduct. Now, I think history will tell us that. Uh, probably a couple of things were true. Probably they were guilty of being spies, but definitely there was prosecutorial misconduct and and they were to some degree framed and they went to the electric chair and and fried. And then, of course, the the McCarthy stuff where, uh, like you said, the climate uh, of the time was very much right at the beginning, in the middle of the Cold War, where there was a huge amount of fear stemming from after World War II and, of course, the atomic bomb, the arms race, uh, that these two countries, the United States and the Soviet Union, could very quickly come to blows and end the world. And, you know, a lot of people took that and ran with it and fear-mongered. Ergo, if somebody labeled you a communist, that was essentially the scarlet letter. And it happened uh, to a lot of people, famous people especially, and people like Roy Cohn were uh, were kind of at the bleeding edge of it. And what I find interesting about Cohn is that he he, uh, he was a bit of an odd, odd guy, closeted homosexual. Uh, if you dig into, uh, dig into him, he was very close with his mother, lived with his mother until he was 40 years old, which I find a, a bit, a bit, a bit bizarre. I can't, I'm 41 now. I can't imagine just having moved out of my mother's house. Uh, so that seems like a bit of a, it's good that he's close, but a bit of an odd reputation. Uh, and you know, I, he went after this person who was supposedly his boyfriend so that that information did not, uh, did not get out to ruin and discredit him. Uh, so I guess, my question is, if he had such a bad reputation, how did he get started with mobsters? Why would they go to him? Jake, have you seen the show Breaking Bad? I have, but not as much. I haven't watched every episode, so I'm not as familiar with it as I should be. There's a scene where Jesse and Walter pull up in front of Saul Goodman's office and Walter says something like, yep. why are you using this guy? And Jesse says something like, 
when the going gets tough, you don't want a criminal lawyer. You want a criminal lawyer. That kind of sums <laughs> it up. That's awesome. He was yeah. ethically and morally flexible. In other words, he had no conscience and did whatever it took to get his clients off, legal or illegal. During his years in private practice, he was indicted for things like extortion, jury tampering, uh, witness tampering, uh, perjury, bribery, fraud, not to mention the numerous professional misconduct investigations, but he always managed to get himself acquitted. Now, repeatedly beating the system and enhanced his reputation with these mobsters because they knew, knew they were in good company because he was a crook like them. In fact, he was so comfortable around the underworld figures that he would let mob bosses hold their meetings in his Manhattan office. So if they were wiretapped, whatever they said couldn't be used against him in court because of the whole lawyer-client thing, privilege. But putting aside his nefarious ways, he was actually a very good lawyer. He had a photographic memory so he could cross-examine a witness and give a summation for hours without consulting any notes. And he had an encyclopedia knowledge of the law. Mobsters also liked his vindictive and relentless, relentless style of lawyering that he mustered during his time in the Senate subcommittee with McCarthy. He already developed that reputation for ruthlessness back then, but he really honed this reputation when he went into private practice. Basically, his philosophy was attack, 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 never admit you're wrong, never make concessions, never admit defeat. His reputation was so fearsome that merely retaining him as your lawyer would cause the other side to scramble and settle the matter. For example, when the Department of Justice filed, the racial, uh, filed a lawsuit against Donald Trump and his father accusing them of racial discrimination for refusing to rent their apartments to black people in Brooklyn and Queens in the early 1970s, Roy Cohn filed a $100 million countersuit against the government. Eventually, the government just gave up and agreed to settle the case. But, Rome's most, but Roy Cohn's most important asset was his access to a network of politicians, judges, law enforcement officials, district attorneys, prosecutors, that he could call on for favours when necessary. Now, he'd often, he'd often invite these influential people to these extravagant parties that he would host to flaunt the fact that he had such a powerful network of friends. So you've got a lawyer who's highly intelligent, ruthless, well-connected, and has no moral compass. Would mobsters really care if he drove people to commit suicide in the 1950s or if he had sex with male prostitutes in his spare time? Obviously not. They just want to avoid prison and continue making money. And it wasn't just mobsters who hired him. His client list included people like Rupert Murdoch, uh, Yankees owner George Steinbrenner, as you said before, yep. Aristotle Anassis, the owners of Studio 54 Nightclub in New York, even the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of New York. So he must have been doing something right. Yeah, and he was uh, an advisor uh, also to the likes, uh, to presidents, to the likes of Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan. Uh, he worked with uh, a guy who I, I depends on your political political leanings, but a key advisor to Trump, Roger Stone, who I believe is doing pr prison time at the moment, or he may be out. Uh, not exactly sure, but I think it's it's clear. I think mobsters liked him because of his bulldog approach, like you said, his ruthlessness, his willing to do anything and everything to 
to get them off, uh, to get them out of, you know, out of their case. And, uh, you know, I would just ask, uh, you know, can you give us an example of how he was able to utilize this vast network of connections specifically in, in a case to, to help some of these mobsters? Well, I'll give you a good example. In 1973, John Gotti and two other men shot dead a man in a bar full of people. He was charged with murder and was looking at a long stretch in prison until Roy Cohn became involved and thought of a brilliant solution. He convinced the district attorney handling the case to accept the plea of guilty to attempted manslaughter instead of murder. Basically, he had Gotti admit to holding the man while someone else shot him. Now, attempted manslaughter carries a sentence of only four years. With good behaviour, <clears throat> Gotti was out in two years. So you've got a convicted felon and career criminal. Yep. He had some form by this time. He had an extensive criminal history, I believe, by this time. Uh, involved in killing a man in a bar full of witnesses, serve only two years in prison. Now, you'd probably do more time for killing your neighbour's cat. The DA obviously <laughs> owed Roy Cohen a favour, so no one else could have pulled it off. And if Gotti went to prison, he probably wouldn't have become, a, become the head of the Gambino family in the 1980s. And he wouldn't be the household name he is today. And he cut a similar deal for Genovese boss, Fat Tony Salono, a long-time client of his. Salono was running a gambling uh, operation that generated tens of millions of dollars every year. And uh, he had Cohen plead guilty to pleading. Cohen had him plead guilty to federal gambling and tax evasion charges in the late 1970s. He was only sentenced to six months in prison and fined $25,000. On top of that, Cohn managed to get charges against six of Salono's co-defendants dropped and arranged for Salono to serve his time in a minimum security prison so he could continue to run his business from the inside. I'm surprised they didn't throw in a weekend trip to Cancun along the way. So you can yeah. see how he used his influence to just work these prosecutors and district attorneys and just work the system it was just a big favor bank in New York, New York that he put to use when he needed it. Yeah, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And in particular with the Gotti case, um, the, the murder was that of James James McBratney, uh, which happened in the early 70s. Of course, Gotti goes to, to prison. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it might have been Carlo Gambino that hooks Gotti up with, with Cohn, uh, if, I, if I remember that right, if I remember my history right. Yes, that's and, right. Uh, and Gotti talks about it later. So later on in Gotti's life, I think it's in the late '90s. Junior Gotti uh, goes in to visit his his dad, uh, and they have a long conversation. And Junior Gotti is, of course, at this point in time, trying to get out. He wants to be done with the mafia. This may be the early 2000s. I don't know. It's before Gotti passed away, and Gotti by this point had been in in prison maybe for a decade or so. And Gotti is talking to him. And, and one of the things they talk about is, is when Roy Cohn was able to, to get him off of the McBratney case, which, which likely would have put Gotti away and Gotti never becomes Gotti. And I think uh, uh, what I remember, and maybe I can find the clip and dub it in here, is uh, Cohn coming into to Gotti and saying, you take three years? Uh, and you know, he had just 
just like that, uh, taking a murder down to basically a slap on the, the wrist and Gotti gets out and becomes uh, and becomes Gotti. Uh, so Cone also used his uh, connections uh, and, and, and his tactics to help mobsters outside of the courtroom. Is that right? Yeah, he did. Uh, for example, up to the 1980s, the mob had a stranglehold over many industries in New York, uh, especially the construction industry. Mm-hmm. Now, Cohn used his relationship with mobsters to serve as a bridge between businessmen and mob-controlled construction companies and union officials. For example, when Donald Trump was building Trump Tower in the 1980s, one of the concrete contractors, SNA Concrete Incorporated, was allegedly owned by Cohn's client, Fat Tony Salerno, and Gambino boss, Paul Castellano. Now, ready-mixed concrete dries quickly, which means if the workers go on strike, the developer's in serious trouble. Yet Trump liked to build with ready-mixed concrete instead of other materials such as steel. Most Manhattan developers at the time opted to use steel to avoid the headache of dealing with all these unions and mobsters. Now, it's been suggested that Cohn brokered a deal between Salerno and Trump to facilitate the construction of Trump Tower and other projects using ready-mixed concrete supplied by mob-controlled companies. By cutting a deal with the mob, Trump, wouldn't have to worry about strikes. And at the same time, he could avoid the costly fireproofing required when you build with steel. Interestingly, when cement workers went on strike in 1982, the concrete continued to flow at Trump Tower and it didn't affect his business at all. Now, when Salerno and 14 others were indicted on criminal charges, including conspiracy and extortion in 1986, one of Trump's projects was mentioned in the indictment. By this point, Roy Cohn had stopped acting for Salerno. Uh, Salerno and the others eventually went to prison on federal charges that included racketeering and bid rigging, and bid rigging in connection with ready-mix concrete businesses. Uh, Salerno was convicted of racketeering and sentenced to 70 years in prison, where he died in 1992. Yeah, and that was uh, probably tied into into the commission case. the The concrete club is, uh, you know, likely where this where this connection is. And there's always been rumors of you know President Trump uh, being connected in some way, shape, or form to the to the mob. And again, I'm not. I don't I, I don't have any political leanings one way, one way or the other. And it, and it probably wasn't just Trump. He just happened to be a big developer. It was pretty much anybody that wanted to pour concrete or build anything in the 1980s in New York specifically paid a tax to the mob. Uh, and, and when I say paid a tax, I really mean inflated the contract. If it was over a certain threshold, inflated the contract and passed that on to uh, consumers. So I've heard, I, I don't remember the exact statistics, but there was a, a massive uh, building, uh, you know, percentage increase over what it would have would have normally cost without the, the mob in there kind of inflating estimates. And quite frankly, I'm surprised some of these buildings <laughs> didn't fall down uh, using ready mix, you know, ready mix con- concrete. Again, I'm not an engineer. Uh, it just sounds a, a little bit flimsy. But uh, so Cohn also represented the infamous Carmine Galante. Uh, so I guess my question is what, uh, you know, what might have happened there? Yeah, he was getting Carmine Galante out of jams all the time. Um, Galante had served 12 years in prison for, on a federal narcotics conviction before being paroled in 1974. One of the conditions of his parole that was that he's not to 
associate or consort with known criminals. It's a bit hard when you recruit criminal, but anyway. In the late 1970s, the United States Parole Commission revoked uh, Galante's parole on the grounds that he was associated with various mobsters at the time. I guess the government just found an easy way to just get him off the streets. Uh, at this point, he was running a large international heroin trafficking operation, and the bodies were piling up in New York as he was challenging other mob bosses for control. Mm-hmm. Cohen filed a petition alleging constitutional deficiencies in the Parole Commission's actions concerning Galante's parole status, and he had this two-pronged attack. Firstly, he claimed that the prison caseworker didn't inform Galante of the parole condition when he, re- when he was released from prison, so he couldn't comply with the condition he didn't know about. Secondly, Cohen argued that Galante's lawyers were not given a meaningful opportunity to cro- cross-examine this particular prison caseworker to test his credibility before the parole was revoked. Now, the court agreed with Cohen and found that revoking his parole without giving Galante's lawyers the opportunity to cross-examine the witnesses was unconstitutional and Galante was released only to be shot dead in Brooklyn five months later. So in hindsight, staying in prison was probably the healthier option for him. Yeah, we are. he uh, famously was assassinated at uh, Joe and Mary's Italian restaurant. Pretty much by that point in time, he had pissed off the entire commission in in New York and and nationally. wasn't sharing profits. Uh, was killing everybody. was a was very much a wild card and had to had to go. He had worn out his worn out his welcome for sure. Um, now again, it seems like one time or another. Uh, Cone represented mobsters from virtually every single New York family. And I guess that begs the question, why didn't he appear at the commission trial in the 1980s? There are two reasons. Firstly, he was very ill because he'd been diagnosed with AIDS by this stage. Although to his dying day, he'd never admitted it. Uh, He would just say that he suffered from liver cancer. He was always very secretive about his homosexual liaisons. Uh, secondly, he was disbarred for, among other things, yeah. going into the hospital room of a dying client and tricking him into signing over control of his multi-million dollar estate. Amazingly, during his disbarment proceedings, he still managed to get his powerful friends to step up, step up and give character references. They included high caliber people like New York Congressman Mario Biaggi, Barbara Walters, mm-hmm. Donald Trump, just to name a few. He died from AIDS in 1986. Uh, He left behind a $7 million tax debt. Throughout his life, he did everything in his power to avoid paying taxes. He rented or leased virtually everything and took a small salary from his law firm. His uh, extravagant lifestyle was supported by this $500,000 expense account provided by his law firm. Mm -hmm. His law firm owned the Manhattan townhouse where he, that he occupied and, and where, that he used as a law office. And he had a 97-foot yacht that was owned by a company secretly, secretly controlled by him. Now, his name has resurfaced a lot in recent years because of his connection to, Roy, uh, to, to Donald Trump. The media yeah. often depicts Roy Cohn as Trump's mentor in the dark arts. Mm-hmm. Apparently, whenever Trump was disappointed uh, with his legal representation during the whole Russia collusion fiasco, he would say things like, I wouldn't be in this position if I had a lawyer like Roy Cohn or where's my Roy Cohn? Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, it's not every day that you find a legal executioner and fixer and shyster. 
to the likes of Roy Cohn, I guess. Yeah, he was um, certainly a special character. I don't think his tactics would would go over so well <laughs> today in uh, the modern era uh, with, uh, you know, everything that you have from a media and a technology standpoint uh, crashing, crashing down on people uh, quickly the moment they uh, they they step out of line. Um, I think it's interesting. Cone is a, he's a bit of a bit of a riddle, uh, clearly a genius. Uh, yes. I don't I, I don't want to know what his IQ was, but clearly a genius, clearly incredibly talented, made a ton of money, incredibly, incredibly unethical to the point of potentially being called purely not purely evil, but definitely definitely not right. Definitely trending towards uh, towards having evil tendencies and i what i find interesting about cone is uh throughout the entire time uh he of course was a closeted homosexual and i think the juxtaposition is and i i, I don't know if it was him uh, it might have been him uh you know one of the reasons the mob was able to really stay out of the FBI's crosshairs for quite some time is is that they had evidence against J. Edgar Hoover, who was also a closeted homosexual. And I, I uh, believe it was Cohn. It may not have been Cohn, but I, I, I think it was Cohn, who is one of those people that had the photos, the blackmail photos that essentially uh, Hoover did not want to did not want to come out. And you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, if maybe that was another lawyer. Uh, it's interesting that he was willing to go after somebody else who was all, also a closeted homosexual while he was a closeted homosexual himself. And, uh, you know, the mob is the mob is interesting as well in the sense that, well, it, it, you know, you can't really be in the mob if you're a homosexual. Right. It, it definitely goes against their traditional bylaws, whatever you want to call them. However, the mob had no problem, especially in the 60s. Carlo Gambino did this, uh, where he had no problem making money off of clubs, gay clubs, homosexual bars, those types of things. And in fact, they were heavily invested uh, in those. So it's just an amazing juxtaposition. I, I think Roy Cohn kind of fits right into the center of that. Clearly, uh, you know, his function uh, as an incredibly effective lawyer superseded the fact that maybe they, you know, maybe they knew he was gay. Maybe they didn't know he was gay. If they did know he was gay, clearly they didn't care. Uh, and yeah, fascinating, fascinating guy for sure. Um, what would you, you know, uh, from a legal perspective, uh, not that you practice anything that, that Cohn himself practiced, but is there anything that as a lawyer you take away uh, and can learn from a guy like him? Well, if you read his trial transcripts, he was a very good cross-examiner. Uh, so you can pick up some tactics that he used in his cross-examinations, the way he set it out. His summations were just a work of art. Uh, but apart from that, unless you're prepared to become a shyster of some kind or <laughs> a really unethical lawyer... There's not much you can take away from him. I mean, uh, unless you want to really, really get into the go into the realm of tax evasion and and yeah. uh, you know committing it, uh, illegal and unethical acts. I mean, is it, it true that he once put uh, a bag of shit on somebody's front steps? 
I actually don't recall that, but I wouldn't no, be surprised. Okay. I've heard but... that. I've heard. I've heard that before. Again, maybe I'm getting my lawyers mixed up. I think. I think that might be him, uh, where he was upset with somebody and was so vindictive that he actually did that. But uh, yeah, that's uh, hilarious. And I, I guess my closing question to kind of put a bow on uh, on Cone is, you know, of all the lawyers you've studied, mob lawyers uh, specifically, where would you rank him? Like at the top top five top 10 uh in terms of both the the quality the legacy uh where would you put him put it this way if i was charged with a serious offense in the 1960s or 1970s i would get roy Cohn. not yeah. so much for his i'm sure there were probably better lawyers out there but the connections he had was so good that he'd get you the best chance. He's, he'd, he'd get you the best result. So if if I had to, if my life was on the line, I would hire him Yeah, back and, in the uh, day. So that kind of sums uh, it up. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that puts him, puts him yeah. pretty high. I think he proved that, uh, that ability over and over and over again. Uh, t- probably terrible human being. Very, very, very good, good lawyer. Uh, and yeah, if I, if, if, if for me, if it's that time frame and somebody literally uh, put a gun to my head and said, hey, you know, if you don't have the right guy representing you, you're going to go to jail for 100 years. Roy Cohn's, if I have the money, Roy Cohn's probably my first call as well. Um, well, Tony, thank you so much for, for coming on. I know, you know, we had some trouble with the time zones with, uh, you know, me being in the U S you being in Australia, but I really, really appreciate it. And quite honestly, uh, I think the audience, uh, for the gangland history podcast, still getting used to to saying that I think they're going to be delighted as we continue to kind of go through the different, uh, mob lawyers. And, you know, I hope to cover a lot of them. Uh, this year. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be interesting kind of comparing and contrasting the different styles and the different levels of uh, involvement and willingness to step over that line. Uh, but thank you so much for, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Gangland History Podcast. If you'd like to donate to the show, check out our Patreon channel. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. If you're an audio-only listener, subscribe via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.